You are listening to the 1830 Podcast Network. Find us easily by searching 1830 Podcast Network directly on the Apple Podcasts app, Google Podcasts app, or Spotify app. Also visit us at facebook.com forward slash 1830 Podcast Network for more information. All right, welcome. Today we are going to do an interview with Apostle Brian McIndoo. I'm your host, Tony McIndoo. And let's go ahead and get started today. How are you doing? I'm doing good. How are you? Doing pretty good. Okay, let's go ahead and jump into this. So uh, tell us about your family, just in case somebody that's listening to this podcast has no clue who you are or where you come from. Just give us a little background on what, uh, where you came from. Sure. Uh, I live in Phoenix, Arizona, was uh, born and raised here, as was my father. But we go back, really, to most of my understanding about our family, we go back to my grandparents um, who were in the church. And uh, my grandfather was Ed McIndoo, married to Louise McIndoo. And he was an elder um, in the church. And he was a pastor and an elder here in the Phoenix local where I live. Um, They had two children. One of them was my father. His name is Donald McIndoo. He's also an apostle in the church. And he's married to my mother, Betty. I uh, am married to uh, Becky. She used to be Malone, um, and she has some family that's in the church, but now she's Becky McIndoo. We have uh, two children. The oldest one is our daughter. Her name's Holly, and now she is married and goes by Holly Bartlett, and she has three children, um, two boys and a girl. And then I have... My son, his name is Anthony McIndoo, and he happens to be on the other side of the microphone from me here. So we, uh, I think he knows most of this. He has, he's married to Lindsay, and they have two girls, and we're hoping for more. So <laughs> that, that would be our desire. Um, but having a nice family, uh, most all of us are in the church going back as far as we know our, pretty much our history. All right. Sounds good. Thank you very much. Uh, No pressure there on having more kids for me, of course. Um, So let's go ahead and jump into this a little more. Tell us about your baptism. Like, um, when was it, if you know the year, what age, where you were, and uh, who performed it? Sure. Uh, You know what? I was born and raised in the church, so I saw all the ordinances taking place. I was in church every Sunday. As I said, my father is an apostle. He was an elder when I was born. And so we were in church all the time. So I was kind of anxious for it to be baptized. Uh, I was excited about it. And when I talked to my parents about it, you know, you kind of said, well, you know, we don't believe in, in children baptism. But, you know, when you get to that age of accountability, and we talked about that, and we said, well, we really don't baptize anybody until they're eight years old. So when I started approaching eight years old, I was really starting to get more enthusiastic and asking about it and planning for it. My father was talking to me and questioning me. So just a few days after my eighth birthday, on the first Sunday after my eighth birthday in 1964, I was baptized um, along with my sister and and another friend of ours. Uh, My father did the baptism. The confirmation was done by my father and my grandfather, Ed McIndoo. And uh, it all took place in the Phoenix local, we had a baptismal fount in what we call the annex. It's where we had our dinners and our 
our mills and, and social activities. And there was a baptismal fount put in the floor there. And that's where it took place. It's an old church we'll refer to as the Harvard Church. Because uh, that's the street that it was on. And Phoenix has moved uh, locals once. And it went from the Harvard Church out to North Phoenix. So it was in the old Harvard Church where I had my baptism. All right. Thank you very much for that. Okay. So next question. Tell us about your career. Um, let's talk about what age you started your career and how long you did that job and, and retirement and whatever you think of after that. Sure. Uh, you know, I, <clears throat> my grandfather was a, a fireman and uh, for the city of Phoenix. And I kind of had a desire to do that. But it, when I was uh, at the age where I was really looking for a career, Things were kind of difficult. Uh, there was a lot of unemployment and the government was helping people in unemployment and giving extra money. And it made it difficult to get jobs on certain departments if you had a job, if you get more preference if you were unemployed. And I was a, a working young man and, and as the, in my 20s, I started applying for jobs. And I applied for the Phoenix Police Department. I uh, went and interviewed for it and was tested. They started talking about this same concept. Well, are you unemployed and this and that? And I, I almost walked out of the, the process because I already did not get hired on the fire department because uh, they were hiring unemployed people, even though they got lower test scores than I did, but they were getting federal funds to do it. So I almost walked out of the process but I stayed in there, finished the test, and sure enough, the city of Phoenix hired all these unemployed people. And then at the very end, they ran out of unemployed people that passed the test, and they started taking off the regular list. So they hired five people off the regular list that had jobs, and I was number five. So I got the job. I went to the police academy uh, back in 19... 78 I went into the police academy a couple of days after my 22nd birthday and completed that academy uh, worked as a police officer after that for 22 years various uh, areas uh, worked some undercover uh, areas worked as detectives and um, that's where I spent my career retired in uh, the year 1999 with 22 years on the department. Awesome. Thank you very much. So, um, so you were a cop for the city of Phoenix. Um, how has that experience helped you with your work with the church or has it helped you? Oh yeah. I, you know, I was kind of resentful not getting on the fire department and I really, since my grandfather was a fireman, I really wanted to do that. But after I went through the academy, I enjoyed my time on the police department. But after I retired and I started doing other work, uh, especially missionary work, I found out how much it really did benefit me. As a fireman, you kind of do things as a team. And uh, as a policeman, you have to make decisions usually by yourself. Um, you have to do things independently. You have to make life and death decisions immediately. Um, you have to learn to be assertive and you had to learn to be very attentive to everything that was around you. Uh, when I went to 
out in the missionary field, I started traveling in third world countries. Some of them were pretty dangerous. And the ability to be aware of what's going around me, it was just naturally trained in me to keep an eye on everything that was happening. And that really um, benefited me because I could have been uh, taken advantage of uh, things bad happening to me if I was not uh, doing that. I was also kind of a timid person. Um, I am by nature timid. And that's just really not a characteristic that most police authors would be. And so in the academy, they, they taught you to have command presence and be able to make sure people understood that you were there and, and take control of situations. And it really helped me. Um, really helped me to be able to go out into strange parts of the world and, and different than whatever I was ever used to and be able to uh, interact and, and get things accomplished, especially when I was dealing with governments and, and different people that would kind of push, or push you around if you weren't um, being able to be strong and, and look them in the eye and really kind of demand what you needed. And so it really gave me that confidence to do that. And it really, really benefited me when I'm out doing missionary work. Awesome. Thank you very much. Okay. So next, next question. Let's tell us about your callings into the ministry. So you can start with your first one. Uh, when it was, what age were you and where was it and who called you? Sure. You know, if I can just expound a little bit on that, I, like I said, I've been in the church all my life and, and at the time that I was just before I was called, I did a lot of things like work on the maintenance committee and, and mow the yard and, and take care of the church building. I was very content in that. I really didn't um, have a desire to be in the ministry, although I uh, came to have a great enthusiasm about understanding the church and, and knowing the, the gospel and did some studying and reading and participation. But um, I was uh, content. But I was called um, in Phoenix local on, on March of 1998 to the office of a priest. And um, I was, that was calling came through uh, Apostle uh, Don Hausnick. And I <clears throat> served as a priest for until uh, 1990. I was very content in teaching Sunday school lessons and um, assisting the elders where they needed help. But in 1990, <clears throat> excuse me, I was called to the office of an elder, also by Brother Hausnick. Um, I served there. I served as the pastor in Phoenix. Um, continued to teach Sunday school lessons. Uh, I was very content in that also. But in April 1998, um, there was a calling that came by Apostle Marvin Ely. Uh, and I was one of those that called at that time. And I was ordained to be an apostle in April of 1998. All right. Thank you very much. Uh, so this is one of my favorite questions, but uh, so what type of preparation do you do for your sermons? Uh, like how long does it take? What's a, what does an average preparation for your sermon look like? Well, you know, it's uh, 
Well, we go back to, you know, <clears throat> I've been in the ministry now for 32 years and I'm 64 years old. So you do the math of half my life I've been in the ministry. And so I've had 32 years to kind of, to change uh, how I prepare. It's considerably different than it was than it was back in 1988, 89. I would start preparing several weeks ahead and, and looking for a subject and studying. And I would spend days upon days upon days um, trying to prepare a sermon. And it's, like I say, considerably different now. Um, and it's different according to where I'm preaching and, and uh, the audience that I know I'm going to have. Um, there's, uh, even now though, I usually, if I have the opportunity, I would prepare a sermon a few days ahead of time, just so I have the opportunity to think about what I'm going to present if there's anything else that comes to my mind, anything else I want to add, I always would, if I had the opportunity to do an outline so I could kind of keep track of what I wanted to say and make sure I said it and not say it out of order. So I wouldn't try to be repeating myself, but you know, things change uh, according to your audience. Um, when I travel in the missionary field and, and we'll probably get to this in a minute, but I do a lot of travel in congregations in, in Africa. And there's been a lot of times where I would have a sermon that I was going to give, but I would show up the congregation and find out, Hey, I have an audience. That's not what I expected. You know, I, I expected X amount of people and I expected it to be these adults. And I find, I show up there and find out there's a funeral or something going on. I got two adults and 20 kids sitting in front of me. So, all of a sudden I go, well, this sermon is really not going to be fitting for them. And I have to switch gears real quick. Um, and so how I prepare really is, you know, what I can do, what, if I, what I know about my audience. Of course, technology today has uh, kind of prevented us from being able to just kind of switch gears in the middle of a sermon or, or to preach a different sermon than you came ready to preach because you already have an outline with uh, something projected on the screen. And if you don't follow that, that uh, path that you prepared ahead of time, um, things just aren't going to work out right. But I, I would always have an outline that would enable me to keep things in order. Um, but with that said, I have a lot of notes in my book. If I find myself, uh, with a different audience than I expected, or the Lord leads me somewhere else, uh, I can go to a scripture and I can uh, find that and use that outline. I often get inspiration from a various avenues. It may be a song that I heard. Uh, it may be a scripture that somebody read in Sunday school, uh, something that came to my mind, uh, some event that's taken place, something that's going on amongst the congregation. Um, I got an inspiration one time from a billboard I saw, you know, it just, it just gave me the inspiration. And I used to keep a little notebook. I'd put those information down and thoughts would come to my mind. I would, I would jot them down. Of course, now I keep that in a phone. And so I, I would normally have two or three different subjects, always kind of in the wings, pending uh, developing it into a sermon. And when it's time for me to preach, 
sometimes I just go, you know, here's where I need to use that. The Lord's telling me this is what I'm preparing you for. So uh, I would pull those notes out and I would start studying them more and develop a sermon and, and uh, prepare it for the, the congregation I was going to speak to. Great. Thank you very much. So a quick question about that. Um, how often would you say you do, for lack of a better term, a rerun sermon where you could go back in your notes from 20 years ago and just do that sermon again and see if anybody notices? Or are you pretty much just new sermons every single time? Or how does that play out? I don't think I've ever done a rerun sermon to the same congregation. Now, just quite honestly, if I'm preaching in, in Phoenix and two weeks later, I'm going to be preaching in Idaho. Um, if the sermon went over good and I thought it was a, a good, appropriate sermon for Idaho, I would rerun it there. But I don't think I'd ever pull back a, a sermon from 10 years ago and run it to the same audience. Um, I don't think I've ever done that. Now, when I'm traveling abroad, um, I have a, a notebook that I carry that has a lot of sermon outlines in it. And I might um, use that sermon in several different congregations. I'd always jot on the top of that where I preach that sermon. So I'd be sure not to do it again. Uh, who there was my translator or was with me. Um, if those people have heard the sermon, I usually don't do it again. A lot of times I just use that sermon as an inspiration um, to get started in a sermon, but really take it a different direction. But I know I have some notes about a particular part of a, a subject there, and I would combine two or three of those sermons. So, All right, great. Thank you very much. So let's move on to the next question here. Uh, do you have a favorite scripture? Yeah, I do. Um, my favorite scripture is in, in uh, Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. And it says, upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. All right. Thank you very much. Uh, do you have a story behind that of how that became your favorite scripture? Sure. Um, you know, I, <clears throat> quite honestly, is the very first scripture I ever memorized and maybe the only scripture I still have memorized, I'm not sure, <laughs> but I know that scripture. We were in a Sunday school class when I was a very young boy. My father was a teacher, and he told us we had to memorize that, and he explained uh, what that meant, what was, uh, what was behind that scripture, and I did remember it, and I memorized it, and for years and years and years, it was the only uh, scripture that I had memorized. Didn't realize that uh, when I started traveling around as a missionary and I started introducing the Church of Christ to people, I started to have to explain the idea of an apostasy, how Satan was trying to uh, destroy Christ's church. And almost invariably, I always have to use that scripture, you know, that Christ made a promise. I will build my church and Satan will not prevail. He will not be able to destroy it. So when I start introducing the church, I'm always using that scripture. And so it's really been a significant part of um, my teachings throughout the, throughout the years. All right. Thank you very much. So uh, my next question here is probably my favorite question. Uh, I like the statistics and all this. Um, let's get some of your stats here. How many sermons have you done? 
Well, that's a <clears throat> kind of a difficult question. It's even a difficult question to to estimate. And I have to kind of to make that estimation. I have to kind of figure out how many trips I make a year, missionary trips, and how often I would preach during those missionary trips, and how many years I've been doing that, and then add the time I would have here at home in Phoenix and going to reunions and, and traveling to other places. And I'm going to give you a conservative number. And it might sound less, it might sound not so conservative, but my estimation is 13 to 1500 sermons. Yes, that's wow. That's and I've, re I've, I've redone that several times and worked it over and over again. And I've done at, at least 1,300 sermons and have probably done another 500 classes on top of that. And as those numbers are probably both conservative. Well, I might, I might need to get your formula for, uh, for future interviews for people so they can try to do that for you. Um, so this is kind of a, an ad lib question here, but give me your best guess at your shortest sermon and your longest sermon. What were the lengths of those? My shortest sermon probably was 20 minutes and I was told to make it a sermonette. And so I did do that. Um, you know, we talked about my using an outline. A lot of my time preparation is trying to cut down the amount of information I have to make my sermon sermon shorter. Um, some people have heard me preach probably think I need to spend a little more time at that because <laughs> I know that my longest sermon has been at least two hours. Two hours. Wow. Do you know, remember where that one was? It was at a, it was during conference uh, a few years ago. All right. Awesome. Thank you. So um, second part of that question, let's get a little more, uh, a few more stats here. Um, how many missionary trips had, do you think you've been on estimated? Well, I estimate uh, about 125, and that's probably conservative also. 125. Awesome. Thank you very much. And that's, uh, is that, that's across the um, ocean? That's, you know, locally? Did you do some in the uh, United States and then go overseas? How, how did those play out? Yeah, I, uh, <clears throat> the first year that I was an apostle, we did not have, um, for me, an assigned overseas missionary field. And so I did travel in uh, Western United States up in, up in uh, Alaska, took a, a trip to Mexico with my father. Um, and so some of those were, were domestic. And then I got uh, assigned to um, some overseas fields. And so I started taking those. I still take missionary trips domestically into uh, Eastern, not, yeah, Eastern and Central uh, Canada, but uh, I don't travel as much uh, domestically. I make a few trips uh, occasionally and go to reunions. All right. Thank you very much for that. Um, so during your missionary um, trips, you said over the past, since like 1998, you said you were um, started taking those um, there must have been some close calls in there. There must have been some situations where you weren't sure you were going to make it out all right. Um, do you have any of those that, that are uh, blurring in your mind right now? Sure. Um, 
you know, before I say that, you, you got to realize that you know, I do travel a lot of places. I travel not only the place I told you about in India or um, Mexico and in the United States, but I also travel on uh, several, I travel in India, um, which is always kind of challenging. I travel in several countries of, of Africa. I've been in Kenya, Tanzania, Uganda, Nigeria, Congo, Ethiopia, Zambia, Togo, and Burundi. And so I've run across a, a lot of times that I've, I've felt that um, I could be in harm's way and have come very close to being in harm's way. And I, the reason I mention those is because when I talk about a couple of these th times, and if you got time for it, I, I'll tell you a couple of interesting stories that, that happened. Um, when uh, we were in Nigeria one time, our driver had this car. We, we rented a, a car with a driver and it was some car. It's so poorly made and, and cheap. They're outlawed in the United States, but that was the car we were in. And he was poking along one time and got in the way of a semi-truck. Well, the semi-truck finally got an opportunity to go around us. As soon as they got next to us, he just pulled over and smashed right into the, the side of our car, uh, right where I was sitting. And we could all see it coming. There was nothing we could do about it. And, and so he just deliberately rammed us, um, which was kind of exciting. I don't know if that was any more exciting than the time that the, we had a different driver. And he just really didn't pay a whole lot of attention to the laws. Well, the policemen were out there and he were trying to stop us one time. And the policeman stood out in the middle of the road and raised his hand. And this driver just wasn't going to stop. So he just kept heading down the road. Well, I was sitting right behind the driver and I could see what was happening. And I assume he thought the policeman was going to jump out of the way and he was just going to keep going. But what happened, the policeman raised a shotgun and leveled it right at the windshield. Uh, at the driver with me sitting right behind him. And I was very happy as I made a quick prayer that this driver would put his brakes on. Um, so we didn't, so we didn't get blasted and, um, and um, he did. And, and we survived that one also, you know, also traveling in Nigeria, we had a different driver. He had a nicer car. He had a, a Mercedes. It was kind of a cheap Mercedes, but he thought it was nice. And, and we were taking a trip to Abuja, which is the capital city. And it goes through this, this forest. And there's this windy road with trees on every side. And you really couldn't see anything. And you have all these blind corners. Well, he's driving 80 miles an hour, passing cars on, on uh, blind corners constantly. And I kept saying, you know, you need to slow down. You need to stop doing that. And uh, he said, no, I, I, I have good reflexes. <laughs> well, you don't have good reflexes. You can't meet a car head on, both of you going 80 miles an hour, and avoid this accident. And as we made that trip, literally, it's hard to believe. It's hard for me to even believe today when I think about it, but I can still envision it. We saw six cars that had been in an accident. They were on the side of the road, smashed up with bodies hanging in them. Um, that were driving that same way. And um, when we reached our destination safely, uh, brother Smith Brickhouse and I were traveling together, both had the same idea. We're not driving home with this guy. We're gonna fly <laughs> back. And so 
we went to the airport and we thought, you know, if this is affordable, we're going to fly back. And so we got to the airport and sure enough, we could fly back to the, the town that we needed to go to for $59. Well, that's affordable, $59 flight. And when we got in the airplane, we found out why it was a $59 flight. It was probably overpriced. This airplane had to be scrapped a long time ago. Uh, the whole thing was shaking and rattling and put together with duct tape. And, and so it was, uh, it was a little nerve wracking too. And, but we did make it back. And so those were kind of exciting times. It's always exciting to drive in Africa. Uh, if it's raining, if, if it's dark, the buses will come at you with their bright lights on right down the center of a, a narrow road. You can't see, but there's drop-offs. Could be anywhere from inches to feet on the side, and, and you can't see where you're going, and you, you try to squeeze by these buses um, without running over pedestrians. But the uh, very best story that I have about something that's dangerous, it was the most frightening uh, it was the most dangerous. And now that I can look back on it, it's probably the most funny. And, uh, I call it the Cho incident. And to understand that you got to understand that Cho is a Swahili word for outhouse. So let me describe an outhouse for you in Africa. And, um, uh, it's usually some poles, six, eight poles stuck in the ground. And they line these poles with, uh, limbs and leaves and, and shrubs and bushes so people actually can't see in, the, in there. They have a, a 30, 40 foot hole deep that is <clears throat> full of human waste that's usually you can look down in the hole and, and see it percolating down there just a few feet below the, the wooden boards that are laid across there with for you to walk on as a little small hole in the middle for you to take aim at and, and try to hit. And that's a typical show. Well, we had a, a congregation in, in uh, Kenya. This all took place in Kisi, Kenya. We had a congregation there and we had built a few permanent bathrooms. And by a permanent bathroom, I mean it had a concrete floor and block walls. Well, this one congregation, they wanted a permanent bathroom. But the leader, he was not very on board with the Church of Christ. I, I thought he had some issues, wasn't sure how long he would be around. And so I told him I wasn't gonna build a permanent bathroom for him. Uh, he could continue to use the show for right now that he had out there. Well, he wasn't very happy with that, but we continued to go there and visit with him. Well, one day we were making the trip and it was about an hour drive, hour and a half drive from where we were staying in Kesey Town after that village. Well, 15 minutes into that drive, I started having a problem. I desperately needed that chill. It must have been something I ate because I had the, the Kenya two-step and I was <laughs> anxiously wanting to get to that show. As I got, we kept going, I got worse and worse and worse. And finally, I started asking God, I said, God, you know, did you really want me to build them a permanent bathroom? Is that what this is about? And if it is, you know, couldn't you have told me an easier way? You know, <laughs> I had to listen. And I'm, I'm carrying this conversation with the Lord. Well, we finally arrived at, uh, at the, the village and we parked on the road because it was up a steep hill to get to the church. And we got there and there's 
crowd of people there to say hi to you. And I'm sitting there shaking hands, hello, 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 hello. And I finally got to the leader and said, hello. He goes, you need to use the show. I go, well, matter of fact, I do. He said, well, go up there, go. I thought it was odd that he invited me to his restroom, but I, I ran up that hill excited to get there. And time was getting tight. And I got to the, the door of the show and I took off my, my backpack and I hung it on the on a pole next to there. And, and I noticed when I walked in that usually you see these wooden planks and this one was all covered with dirt. All you could see was the hole. You couldn't see the wooden planks. Well, I, I forgot to tell you, uh, a show in Africa is bring your own toilet paper also because they don't supply that in there. You grab a, a leaf if you need something, but I had my own toilet paper in my bag and I was very happy. I, I made it to this show without incident and took care of business. And after I was done, I, I needed to find the necessary stationery for the letter I just wrote that was in my backpack. And so I, I had my pants down around my, my ankles and I tried to do duck walk over there to get my toilet paper. And I took about two little steps and the floor gave out. And here I was grasping to this filthy, dirty uh, wooden planks and dirt, um, holding on as, as the bottom half of me and my pants were dangling underneath the, the planks of the wood. And my passport was in my pocket as well as my uh, wallet and all my identification and my car keys. Uh, we're all hanging down there, and I'm trying to uh, recover without going all the way into the bottomless pit. And there was a, a vine that's called Ngoji Kidogo, which is Swahili for wait a bit, that I grabbed onto. It's called wait a bit because it's covered with thorns. And I had this thing wrapped around my arms, around my head. It's probably the only thing that kept me from falling in. Um, but I'm sitting there using this vine, and I'm trying to crawl out of this bathroom. Um, out of this pit before I go completely in. Obviously, I didn't make it out, or you wouldn't see me sitting here today. But uh, when I finally got out and went back to church, I, I whispered to our translator, uh, who's Moses Ohuru, what happened. He says, you know, I was looking out the door of church, and I could see the show moving like this. <laughs> and I told the leader, he said, I got to go down there and check on Brian. And the leader says, no, he's okay. He's okay. Just leave him alone. Um, so I told Moses, I said, next time the Lord tells you to come check on me, please do. Um, but <laughs> it, it was dangerous. It, it could have been a, a potential, uh, very hazardous uh, experience going to that show. Uh, still didn't get his permanent bathroom there at Ramba, and they're no longer in existence. Uh, the leader did leave, and, and I'm not so sure he didn't sabotage that show just for my my benefit, but um, it was a dangerous thing, and, and I do step carefully every time I use a show from from this day forward. So that's just one of my experiences. Well, thank you for that. That was very uh, that was pretty scary to hear about. Um, so let's go ahead and wrap this up here. Uh, do you have anybody that you would like to hear um, do an interview like this or a podcast sermon, or do you have anybody you'd like to call out and see if they would uh, do a podcast for us? Well, you know, I'd love to see you be able to contact Elder Moses Ohuru in Kenya, um, and maybe someday you will be able to do that. Um, it'd be fun to have a, 
a podcast with him speaking. But at present, uh, I think um, Elder Mike Bavart in Canada would be a, a very interesting um, podcast and an interview with him. All right, thank you very much. And lastly, uh, can you tell us something that most people do not know about you? Well, yeah. Something that most people don't know about me is I really hate to talk about myself. So you can imagine how hard doing this interview is. Um, I get somebody on the airplane sitting next to me and they start asking me these questions. I want to know all these things about me. And it's just like, I don't want to tell you this. <laughs> you know, I, I don't want to talk about this. And so invariably, I don't tell a lot of war stories. I don't tell a lot of things that have happened. Uh, I just don't, I just don't talk about myself. And so uh, if you ever want to know something from me, I'm not telling you, it's probably just that you just need to drag it out of me and, and I'd be happy to tell you, but that's just something most people don't know about. All right. Well, I'm sure you've enjoyed this whole process. Then if you don't like talking about yourself, Oh, um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, thanks for coming on. Uh, and we'll have this for years to come. So uh, at least we have this little bit from you. Um, so anything else you'd like to say before we uh, get out of here? I just, uh, I'm, uh, I'm thankful for the opportunity that the church has given me and the Lord's given me uh, to serve him and to uh, do the work that I'm able to do. Um, you know, I never aspired to be a missionary, but uh, the Lord certainly uh, put me in the right place because um, I've changed my mind on that. Uh, I never aspired to, to leaving home. I liked home base, but, you know, I, I like an adventure, and I like a, to take the path that's less traveled, and, and I didn't uh, have to go and take over somebody, ever, uh, somebody else's missionary field. What I was able to do is... Uh, to blaze a path to new places, uh, to all these countries. I was, uh, for the most part, the first one in, and I really love it. I just really love those opportunities. And uh, I, I'm really thankful that God gave me that opportunity to do that. Uh, um, I wouldn't change my life for anything. All right, thank you very much for that. This is uh, Apostle Brian McIndoe. And uh, we are going to sign off now. Thank you very much. Have a great day. Thank you.